Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cut. cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. Those are verses 1 to 7 of Psalm 16, which along with Psalm 17 are the psalms appointed for today, Friday, April the 29th, 2022. <clears throat> You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. We are continuing our look at uh, the prophecy of Daniel in chapter 3, verses 1 to 18, also in Luke's gospel, chapter 3, verses 15 to 22, and in the uh, first epistle of John, uh, chapter 3, verses 1 to 10. So Daniel, now we're, we're going to hear more today about his companions, who we know as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Um, the king ha- is, is deciding to, to propose a worship and a test. Uh, the king Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits, which is about 90 feet, and its breadth was nine, six cubits, so about nine feet wide and about 90 feet tall. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So these are all the royal officials over various things. Then, and we're going to get this whole list all over again, then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you're to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. So they're going to play a bunch of music. So essentially, they're going to they're going to have all kinds of instruments that play. And when they hear that, they're to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Therefore, as soon as the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, tri- trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the people's nations and languages fell down and worshiped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans, remember, these are the ones that... Um, Daniel had saved from being put to death by being able to tell the king not only the interpretation of his dream, but the dream itself. So these people, these Chaldeans who who had been saved by Daniel, came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of, here we go, the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. So we're just repeating to you exactly what your commandment was and what you announced the punishment for failing to comply would be. And these men who were saved by another Jew says to them, there are certain Jews whom you've appointed over the affair of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. 
So why would they do this? Well, they're jealous because when Daniel <laughs> got, when he did what he did in interpreting the king's dream and giving him the dream, then he got a promotion, right? So he's now over these guys who were his teachers formerly. He proved himself to be superior to them in wisdom and knowledge because he got that from the Lord. And so they're jealous because when he rose, when he got his promotion, he also secured promotions for his friends. And so now they, in the eyes of the Chaldeans, have gotten too big for their britches. They're not really Babylonians, see? They're still worshiping their God. They haven't given that up and become good Babylonians. Nope, they are still Jews. They're not really assimilated, and they're not, well, obedient to you and your commandments. So Nebuchadnezzar, in a furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. Now, this same thing, this same basic plot is runs through the book of Esther as well, right? Because there, the king Ahasuerus has has set up something that has to be obeyed, and and at the uh, urging of Haman. And so here we get the same thing. These Jews won't play ball. They won't become good subjects. They don't seem to have it in them to become good subjects. And so there's always a plot against them. So Nebuchadnezzar, um, they bring him, bef- bring them in before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I've set up? Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the hornpipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I've made, well and good. It'll be fine if you go ahead and do it now. But if you don't worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Well, now we've got a king who is too big for his britches. The God that he's just asked about is the God of Daniel, the God who revealed all these things to Daniel and who revealed these things to Nebuchadnezzar. But he hasn't expressed any sort of interest in getting to know more about the God of Daniel. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Don't bother playing the music. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he'll deliver us out of your hand, O king. He is the king of kings. And Nebuchadnezzar admitted that when he spoke with Daniel, that this was a unique God in that he was able to reveal things that other gods were not able to reveal. And so he was the God of gods and the king of kings. But that's the God that these guys are talking about. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. In any event, whether God saves us or not is an immaterial thing. We're not going to worship that thing one way or another. No, we're forbidden to do such a thing. So, tomorrow... We'll see how that ends. I'm assuming that you all know (laughs) how it ends. But that's where we leave the lesson today is their defiance in the face of the king to say, no, we're not going to worship just because you commanded it. We have a God that's, that's higher and more powerful than you, and he is able to deliver us. We don't doubt that a bit. But if he chooses not to, that's his prerogative, and it doesn't change anything. In the gospel today, so yesterday we had just, we had met John Right. So Luke introduced us to John the Baptist and, and told us about his ministry. And now here we are, as the people were in expectation and were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. And, and we know that everybody wanted to know who John was, 
they had to have known his origin story. They had to have known that an archangel visited his father, who was a priest, who was in the holy place, and announced this birth. There's no question that people would have been looking to John to do something extraordinary and to be an extraordinary person because of the circumstances of his birth. And so John answered them all by saying, I baptize you with water, but he was mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. In other words, I'm not saying, I'm not making any statement at all about who I am, except for I'm not the Christ. There's one who is coming after me who is greater than me. That's the only, so he is denying that he's the Christ, but he's not taking anything else on for himself. John's just doing what he was given to do. And that's all he knows, or that's all he wants, is to say, I'm just a guy who's being obedient to the mission God gave him. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into the barn, but the chaff he'll burn with unquenchable fire. So, so he's the one that you need to, to be afraid of at some level because he's coming in judgment, is what, he's say, what John's saying. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. Does any of that sound like good news to you? I mean, yes, he's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit, right? So that's a good thing, but the rest of it is about judgment. But the, the good news is that there's one who's coming, who's greater than I am. But Herod, the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added to them all that he locked up John in prison. So we, we know the, the circumstances here. Herod is a Jew. He has married his brother's wife. Herodias is her title, essentially. And, and he then um, has committed adultery, and he's gone against the law, and he's Jewish. And so John was outspoken about that sin. He, he was not going to let it go past uncommented on because this man claimed to be a Jew. And so that sin had to be pointed out in accordance with what Jesus taught in Matthew 18 which is when, when a brother sins, then you're to warn them. You're to bring them back. And James tells us that if you bring a brother back from sin, then, then you've covered over a multitude of sins. So it, it's that impetus that John has for, for telling people, you need to show us, you need to show the world what, what Judaism looks like. And you're not doing that. You went completely against it. You, you're acting like the world when you marry your um, brother's wife this way. This is, this is not something that's okay in Judaism, and it needed to be called out. So Herod put him into prison. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in a bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You're my beloved Son. With you, I'm well pleased. So what we see in John here is, is that he's like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in that he didn't bow the knee to an earthly power. He was not a respecter of persons. He was speaking and standing for the Lord, and, and what Herod had done had brought dishonor on Judaism. He was not representing Yahweh or Judaism appropriately. And so then we see that Jesus is baptized, and we hear the voice from heaven proclaiming Jesus as his son, in whom he was well pleased. So that then, so who's greater here, the one who baptized or the one who was baptized? And that would be Jesus, obviously. And so John denied that he was the Christ, but now the voice from heaven proclaims, here he is. Here's the Christ. Um, in the epistle today, 
Remember what I've told you about First John, and, and that is that he is speaking into a situation where others have come and preached a false gospel. They have denied, at some level, they've denied the reality of the fullness of the Incarnation. So, and they have said then, therefore, the flesh has no, has no benefit, and it can't harm you, whatever you do with the flesh. So he is, and, and John is saying that the flesh actually does matter. There's a witness there to who you are and whose you are. It, it, there's a witness to Christianity in the flesh. That, that's what other people need is they need to see you enfleshing what you believe. In the same way, Jesus enfleshed the Word. In, so in this passage, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. And that's a powerful statement to say that we have become children of God, and he's not applying that to the rest of the world, only to those who believe, those who are being saved, those people who believe that Jesus came in the flesh— who was crucified and died, was buried, and on the third day rose again, and then ascended to heaven and sat at the right hand of the Father, comes again in glory to judge the living and the dead. That is the, the confession of those who are children of God, those who have been born again. The reason why the world does not know us is that it didn't know him. And the proof of that is, well, the crucifixion. Beloved, we are God's children now. We didn't used to be, is the implication, and what we will be has not yet appeared. So this is sort of the, what is the resurrection body going to look like sort of debate. And, and, but the reason John goes into this is to say that, right, I mean, this flesh will pass away, and I don't know what the final form will be, but this flesh is still important. It's part of your witness to Christ. But we know that when he appears, we'll be like him, whatever that is, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. In other words, what, what he's saying is, is that, that we don't know what the final form is going to look like. We'll have to wait until we see Jesus. And when we see him as he is, then we'll know. But in the meantime, everyone who hopes in him purifies himself. In other words, deals with sin in his life. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness because sin is lawlessness. And Paul talks in Thessalonians about the man of lawlessness. And that is sort of an antichrist as well. The one who will come in and set up a, uh, a, a false kingdom that, that says that this, this doesn't matter. That lawlessness is not wrong. Well, we're close to that. We, we've got a lot of people who, who take the name of Christ, who preach and teach and all that kind of stuff, and tell us that actually this doesn't matter. A lot of the stuff that, that uh, the Bible is hung up on doesn't actually matter. It was, it was cultural, you understand, that those prohibitions were, well, they just didn't understand. They, they, they didn't have, like, psychology courses and stuff like that. And so they said these things were bad. Well, they're not really. It was just, it reveals the ignorance of those who wrote the Bible. Well, if it does, then what it does is it reveals the ignorance of God, because God superintended this. It is is by divine inspiration that we have this Bible, which means that I can't say that anybody who wrote the Bible was ignorant of things, because God is the one who is the inspiration for all of it. I mean, I I was in a group one time that— 
it was we were listening to a deacon's sermons. I'd been asked to be part of the group because she misunderstood who I was. Um, <laughs> that we we weren't uh, copacetic at all as far as our theology is concerned. We just both happened to love college football. So I'm, I'm asked, and I come to this group, and before it starts, there's a group over next to me talking about. Um, these crazy people who who have a problem with homosexuality and and I said, well, wait a minute now. <laughs> Just because Jesus didn't say anything about it doesn't mean there's nothing in the Bible about it. Jesus is the Word of God, right? I mean, he he oversaw this whole thing. He is the Word, and the Word's pretty clear. And Paul is really clear. And their response to me was, well, Paul was a repressed, self-loathing homosexual. And my response was, what in the world are you talking about? Where did you get that? Which epistle did he did he disclose that in? But that's the thing is we psychologize the Bible. We don't take it as the Word of God. And when we don't take it as the Word of God, then we've stepped outside the covering. We've stepped outside the covenant, actually. We might as well be considered unbelievers if we, if we question the authenticity of the Word of God and what it has to say against us. And so... John here says you've got to purify yourself, and that purification has a, well, a definition in terms, and it's called the Bible, <laughs> and it defines righteousness. It defines sin in order that we would know righteousness, and so that's what, what John's arguing is, is that you've got these people coming in telling you these things don't actually matter, but the Bible takes very seriously the fact that, that the flesh matters. He says, everybody who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness because sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. <clears throat> Little children, let no one deceive you. And what he means here, what he's getting at, is somebody who's a settled practice of sin. I'm going to do this. I've settled, I've settled this in my mind. And I'm going to persevere in doing this no matter what the Bible has to say about it. That's exactly what it means to say they have a practice of sinning. It says, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil's been sinning since the beginning. So if, if you pursue sin... In that way, if you make a practice of it, if, if it's your habit and, it, and it's, it's a settled thing that you've decided in advance, this is what I'm going to do and I'm going to persist in this, then he says, you are of the devil. It's as clear as that. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sitting, for God's seed abides in him. In other words, the Holy Spirit constrains him in that way. And he can't keep on sinning because he's been born of God. So... In other words, if you've been filled with the Holy Spirit, then your attitudes and desires should be shaped in a different direction. You should recognize sin for what it is and stay away from that and move in a different direction. And he says you will, in fact, do that because the Holy Spirit in you will constrain you from doing these things. <clears throat> but it's by, by this, it's evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. And what John's saying here is to say, these people who claim to know more than you, don't worry about them. If they're not practicing righteousness, they're not of God to start with, no matter what knowledge they claim to have. They didn't get that knowledge from God if it's leading them in that direction. So don't worry about it. Let them go. The best thing that could have happened to you was for them to have left you. And they clearly didn't love the brother because, well, they separated from you guys. And, and that's an important thing. In, in society today, what we see a lot 
among certain brands of Christians is constant drumbeat criticism of the body of Christ, and, and largely because, well, they don't do things the way I do them, or politically they think different than I do, and, and they're to be condemned. No, no, let them go. Let them go. It, it, that is exactly what John would say. Let them go. If, if they're, it's not their job to be critics of the body of Christ, and it's not their job to be critics of the body of Christ in these kinds of instances. And, and it's just absolutely amazing, because at some level, politics becomes salvation there. And so you've got people on one side who say this, and people on another side who say this, when th- there's no righteousness in Democrat and Republican. The, neither of those is righteous. So we've got to be careful, and, and we've got to be careful about loving the fellowship, loving the unity of the church. Jesus died in many, many ways so that we would be one as he and the Father are one, and we would be in him in such a way that that unity would express itself. That's what he prays for in the high priestly prayer. If you want to know what's most important to somebody, what are the things that they're concerned about at the end? What was Jesus concerned about? Go back and read John 17 again, and what you'll see is he was concerned about unity. He was concerned about love for one another in the body of Christ. And so we've got to not become the accusers of our brethren. 